Hello and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Men hate to lose at anything. Vince Lombardi said, men winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Well, this episode examines how David lost a battle that brought devastation into his own life and great suffering to his family. Thanks for joining us today for season number two, episode number 20 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Eagle. A bird watcher gazed at the magnificent soaring of the golden eagle he had spotted. It was nothing but regal eloquence in flight, climbing, gliding, soaring higher and higher almost effortlessly. Such a sight was a perfect picture of the early years of David's life as he climbed from the place of lowly shepherd to the heights of national leadership as king. In 30 years, David experienced unparalleled success as he rose to power. No king of Israel would ever be as well-loved by the people, as victorious in battle, or as faithful to the Lord. But as our ornithologist continued to watch the golden eagle's flight, something went terribly wrong. The majestic creature seemed incapable of soaring higher, and in fact began to plummet. Moments later, it lay dead on the ground. Bewildered, the observer found his way to the lifeless mass, wondering what had happened. As he examined the eagle, he discovered the answer. Still curled up in its talons was a weasel. No doubt the prey that the eagle was expecting to provide it the pleasure of a meal. But as the weasel was drawn close to the big bird's body for flight, it had managed to sink its teeth into the breast of the eagle, sending the majestic creature to earth. Second Samuel 11 is the chapter that records the deadly bite of the weasel in David's life. What he expected as he drew Bathsheba to his body was a feast of pleasure. What he got was a deadly wound that sent him crashing downward. David was taken down by temptation, specifically by sexual lust. Let's look at how lust defeated him. From 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's make some observations. First, David had been sowing the seeds for this kind of a defeat for years. Back in 2 Samuel 5, verse 13, we read, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. 
David had placed himself above God's law as an exception to God's design of marriage between one woman and one man. Ever since David took a second wife, he had been violating Deuteronomy 17, verses 15 and following, which say to Israel, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. Using Paul's spiritual armor analogy, David was not encircling himself with God's truth about the behavior of Israel's kings, which would have caused him to have the breastplate of righteousness in place regarding his sexuality. We might think that if any man in Israel should be able to turn away from the temptation to have sex with another man's wife, it would be David. With multiple wives and concubines, his sex drive had to be sated, right? But that is not how lust works. God seems to have designed sex so that satisfying our sexual desires sinfully inflames our illicit sexual desire, making it harder to resist temptation next time. The more we indulge our sexual appetite in the wrong way, the stronger that appetite becomes. Applying this principle to the use of porn, Jerry Kirk writes, At the University of California, Irvine, Dr. James McGough has conducted research suggesting that memories of experiences that occurred at times of sexual arousal are difficult to erase. Thus, powerful sexual memories keep reappearing on his mind's memory screen, stimulating and arousing him. Every time he masturbates to those fantasies, he is like one of Pavlov's dogs rewarded by his orgasm, which reinforces the memory. So the first truth from David's example is that losing the battle with lust today strengthens lust for its next battle with me tomorrow. Observation number two is that when the temptation struck, David had no Jonathan in his life. Jonathan had been killed years before on Mount Gilboa. David, like most powerful leaders, had no one in his life watching his back. He had no one sit down years before this incident with Bathsheba and say, David, your military success is great, but what about Deuteronomy 17? What are you doing thinking about taking a second wife? And in that spring, when David sent Joab out to lead the army in his place, no one said, I know you're getting older, David, but when a king sends warriors out to battle, they need their king to be leading the way. When it comes to battling lust in the 21st century, the stakes are too high. The battle is too fierce. The enemy is too wily. The attacks are too frequent. The cost of defeat too severe for any Christian man to fight this spiritual battle alone. The second observation from David's example is that David had no one watching his back. Do you? Let me mention a resource that you can link to in the show notes that helps build the brotherhood connections that men sense they are missing and know they need. It's entitled Got Your Back, available in Audible, ebook, or printed formats. Our third observation about Lust's defeat of David is that when temptation struck, David was not where he should have been. That fact is certainly emphasized as this story begins in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David stayed at home. David's loyal soldiers lay on rocky ground inside a tent. David was taking a nap in his luxurious palatial bedroom. David's men left the comforts of home for the hardship of war. David left the hardship of war 
one he instigated to enjoy the pleasures of home, including his harem. David's men fought till they had no energy left. David slept till he was bored. When Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, he was teaching us that it is wise to think through the situations that bring us temptation. Over the years, I've compiled this list for the battle with lust. First, the outer conditions when the craving for a little illicit sexual pleasure is most appealing. Something sexually stimulating crosses your path, like a woman taking a bath. Or you are alone with the opportunity to pursue illicit sexual pleasure. Or you are far away from anyone who would know about your little private pleasure excursion. Or it is the middle of the night and you can't sleep. Or you are in a physical situation that has a past association with sexual pleasure. What are the inner conditions when the craving for a little illicit sexual pleasure is most appealing? Loneliness, boredom, anger, perhaps toward your wife, being emotionally down or feeling empty inside. So our third observation is to be alert to situations where temptation might strike so we can avoid them or anticipate the temptations they could bring. Our fourth observation is that David notices naked Bathsheba and continues to feast his eyes on her. Archibald Hart describes the male sex drive strong, urgent, forceful, and impatient. The sex drive dominates the mind and body of every healthy male. Strong sexual feelings are common to all normal men. They are determined more by hormones than by evil desire. The blunt truth is that because of David's multiple wives and concubines, David had been feasting his eyes on lots of naked women. Why should Bathsheba be any different? Unlike the godlier Job, David did not bounce his eyes away from the scene of this exposed woman. Job 31.1 tells us that Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. This discipline of bouncing our eyes away from half-dressed women is vital for two reasons. First, if I gawk at sexually provocative images, it trains my daughters to think that what gets a man's attention is dressing provocatively. Second, continuing to gaze, as David did, opens the door to lust. The best strategy for defeating lust is beating it when it's furthest from my heart. At the beginning, when it just requires bouncing my eyes before my sexual engine starts revving up. This, of course, is what David did not do. The fifth observation about lust defeat of David is that his sexual desires are ignited. The more David watches, the more the weasel sinks its teeth into David's flesh. I'm reminded of James' description of temptation. He writes, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. The word for lust is epithumia, which means literally over-desire or runaway desire. We associate lust mainly with intense sexual desire, but the word means any kind of intense desire. 
What James is saying is each one of you is tempted after your normal desire becomes a runaway desire, which then entices you to sin. It's a normal desire to want to have order in your home. But when that desire becomes a runaway desire, causing you to explode in anger at your kids, you sin. The fruit in the Garden of Eden was desirable to Eve, but when her desire for it became a runaway desire, she sinned. Any red-blooded man would have been attracted to Bathsheba's beautiful body, but David's continued look enabled Satan to fan the embers of God-given sexual desire into blazing runaway desire. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes this process. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or revenge or love of fame or power or greed for money. So temptation begins by stoking sexual desire into an out-of-control lust. Our sixth observation about lust's victory over David is that temptation provides the opportunity to satisfy that stoked-up desire unrighteously. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was away. The text implies that her bathing was ritual bathing, marking the end of her period. David had servants who could inquire about her and the status of being the king to require her to come to his palace. Back in James 1.15, we read, After lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. As sperm and egg must be joined together for physical conception to take place, so the two elements of intensified desire and opportunity to step across the line of the moral law come together, giving birth to sin. Again, Bonhoeffer describes the process. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. The devil doesn't fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. When the craving for sexual gratification is ignited and there is opportunity for sexual sin, Scripture says flee. Paul writes to the Corinthians, flee fornication. And to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Joseph flees from the seductions of Potiphar's wife. But David does not do that. His runaway desire for Bathsheba is in control. He asks about her, and even when he discovers that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah, one of his 30 mighty men, the most courageous and royal men in the nation, it makes no difference. The weasel's deadly teeth are squeezing tighter. David must have her. And so he does. Observation number seven, David seems to get away with his sin, but he does not. 
One of the deadliest parts of sin is that its destructive consequences almost never happen immediately. David thinks he's gotten away with it, but Bathsheba gets pregnant. It has to be his baby since she had just finished her period. He schemes to bring Uriah home to sleep with his wife so everyone thinks it's his. Let's pick up the story there. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going on. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Jacob and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? Can you imagine the dagger of guilt that must have pierced David's heart at that moment? Out of unflinching allegiance to David, Israel's army, and Israel's God, Uriah would not go near his own wife. This picture could not contrast more sharply with David's lust, contempt for God, scorn for his troops, and betrayal of Uriah, the pillar of loyalty to David, in taking his wife. What more could God do to open David's eyes to his sin than to show him this stark contrast? But David's heart was so hardened by sin that instead of falling down to his knees and begging his loyal subjects forgiveness, he ends up deciding to murder him. I want to tell you, when I think about this conversation and see the way sin blinded David's conscience, it terrifies me. David doesn't get away with his sin. His sin hardened his heart so much that he murders one of his most loyal, faithful followers. Here are four takeaways for us from David's failure. First, we need to hate evil. Paul commands the Romans, abhor evil. He warns the Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The pain that David caused himself and others would take three or four podcasts to cover. It was enormous. One of his sons raping one of his daughters, another son murdering his brothers, rebellion against David as king. It was awful. Our second takeaway is this. We need to put an end to the childish thought that God's laws restrict our happiness. Listen to the grieving heart of God because David did not trust him enough to obey him. After citing all that he had done for David, God says, And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? God's heart as our Father is to lavish us with good gifts. 
When life doesn't give me what I want, I need to stop acting like the spoiled child at the grocery store checkout line who wants candy whining, you don't love me. Takeaway number three, King David was that soaring golden eagle, the best Israel had to offer. But the best of all kings broke four of the Ten Commandments in just this one story. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, number 10. You shall not commit adultery, number 7. You shall not steal, number 8. You shall not murder, number 6. The primary lesson of the story of David and Bathsheba is that sin is too strong for any human, even a man after God's own heart. Only Jesus can defeat sin. This is a liberating truth because it gives us the courage to bring our struggles with lust into the open. God never intended a man to fight his battles with lust alone. To do so is to lose them. Joe Dallas says, Sexual sin thrives in the dark. If you're caught up in any sexual vice, one thing is certain. The secrecy surrounding your behavior is what strengthens its hold on you. However ashamed you may feel about admitting your problem to another person, the reality is this. You can't overcome this on your own. If you could, wouldn't you have done so by now? Takeaway number four, we must always let failure drive us toward Christ and not away from him. After being confronted by Nathan and told that God forgave him, David took his failure to God, writing Psalm 51. The accuser of the brethren wants to heap shame upon us because of our sin, especially sexual ones. Don't let him get away with that. A veteran warrior in the battle with lust points out, It isn't the sinless man who makes it to the end. Rather, it's the man who's learned to pick himself up after he stumbles. If your struggle seems relentless, remember this. When you commit yourself to sexual integrity, you commit yourself to a direction, not perfection. You may stumble along the way. That's no justification for sin, just a realistic view of life in this fallen world. What determines the success or failure of an imperfect man is his willingness to pick himself up, confess his fault, and continue in the direction he committed himself to. Remember Paul's approach, forgetting these things that are behind, I press on toward the mark of the high calling. In studying how lust defeated David, the first observation is that losing the battle with lust today strengthens this foe for our battle tomorrow. With a harem and many wives, if any man's hunger for sex should have been satisfied, it should have been David. But his long-standing indulgence in illicit sex destroyed his ability to say no to his sexual urges. Besides lust bloating David's sexual appetite, lust won because 1. David had no one watching his back. Two, lust struck at an opportune moment. Three, instead of treating Bathsheba with the dignity she deserved and bouncing his eyes away from her accidental nakedness, he gratified his sexual desire by staring at her, revving up his sexual engine. Four, with Uriah away, there was a great opportunity to indulge this illicit craving. Perhaps the highest price tag for David's sin is the awful loss of spiritual perception as his heart hardened so much that he murders one of the finest men in his army. We need to 
One, learn to hate evil because of the way it destroys. Two, grow out of the childish idea that trials and difficulties prove God doesn't love us. Three, recognize that the church's name is Sinners Anonymous and find strength by being honest about our sexual temptations. And four, know that faithfulness to Jesus is much more about getting up quickly when lust takes us down than it is thinking we will never lose any battles to it. For further prayerful thought, number one, how is the story of the weasel taking down the eagle similar to Lust's takedown of David? See the episode notes for further questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, Palm Sunday celebrates the kingship of Christ, so we want every guy who listens to our podcast to be re-energized about his mission to seek first the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells us in six different ways what the kingdom of God is like. This picture sharpens our clarity about what we are to seek first while firing us up about God's purpose for our lives. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.